Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to, in, and order, uh, <laughs> it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Susan. Good morning, everybody. Wow, there's a lot of people in the balcony. Good to see all of you in the balcony. Hey, yeah, give me a wave. All right. Um, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome to fall. Doesn't it feel like fall? I thought that yesterday afternoon about 4 o'clock as <clears throat> the sun was beating down on me. Oh, this feels so fallish. Um, but the universe is kind of slowly transitioning to, you know, the way it's supposed to work. Seminoles are back to winning. The Gators are back to losing. And, um, yeah, so, you know, just had to throw that in there. Uh, if you're a guest with us and you've never been here before, um, welcome. Uh, glad that you're here, and I hope that your team won yesterday. Um, but we're in the middle of a series on uh, the book of Acts, and as we continue to walk through Acts, uh, we have seen the gospel advancing, going forward uh, from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, as Jesus said it would to the disciples back in chapter 1. Uh, and so we are really into, as we get into these later chapters of the book of Acts, we're into the uttermost parts of the earth as they knew them uh, at the time. And what you continue to see is this battle between uh, the message of grace as the apostles are pro proclaiming it, promoting it, it's advancing, the Gentiles are coming to faith, uh, great rejoicing, great additions of believers are, uh, are being made to the church, and yet you see this tension between the religious folks of the day uh, standing in the way of that or at least trying to make it more difficult 
for those who are coming in. Uh, let me refer back to, if you have a Bible and it's open, uh, you can look there. Otherwise, uh, just listen. But the, the passage that uh, Drew uh, taught us from last week uh, and, and talked about the Apostle Paul uh, speaking in terms of a context to those who, who didn't, didn't have the Bible, didn't have the, the Old Testament laws or anything like that. He appeals to nature and uh, makes, a, makes a very impassioned plea for them to come to faith, but from a different posture than he did if he was speaking to a Jewish audience. And yet, it says, verse 18 of chapter 14, so Acts 14, verse 18, even with these words, they, that is, Paul and uh, the apostles there, scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But keep reading. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. It was the Jews, as they came and kind of stirred up the people, that they moved toward uh, violence. And, you know, reflecting on that this week, uh, religion is dangerous. Religion makes people dangerous. It causes people to do very violent things. You saw it last weekend uh, in New York and New Jersey uh, on top of, you know, the last 15 years of, uh, of our lives and some of the things that we have seen. The church today, though, continues to battle the very issues that this chapter, uh, chapter 15, highlights. And the difference, though, is often how we resolve it compared with how it was handled in this particular example from Acts. And so we, we can learn several things. As the sermon title says, we can learn grace actually triumphs. This is the point at which, as Drew and I were talking this week, you know, he said, I, I feel like this is the point at which the church said, kind of categorically, we're choosing grace. We're choosing grace. And to be a part of the church, uh, you come in through grace, as Peter says, uh, and we'll look at that in more detail. So if you have a worship folder, you should have received one. You have a little insert there. On one side is the scripture Susan read, and on the other is the outline. And so you see there in the outline what we're going to look at, the lure of legalism, how attractive it is, and why is it so attractive. Secondly, contrasted to that, that salvation belongs to the Lord, the message that the apostles and Peter here in this passage continues to kind of trumpet it's free grace, it's free grace, it's free grace, and then the difference that that free grace makes uh, in light of uh, what we see here, okay? So those three things. The summary is really this. The gospel of grace is the only corrective and preventative against the lure of legalism. The gospel of grace is the only corrective and the only preventative against the lure of legalism, Okay, brushing your teeth regularly and flossing is a good preventative against tooth decay. And re reciting, repeating, rehearsing, oh, man, just over and over, the gospel of grace is the only way uh, that you can fight the lure of legalism because it's, uh, it's very tempting. So take a look back in your worship folder in your Bible at verses 1 and 5, okay, as we go into the lure of legalism. The language is part of the key to understanding legalism, I think, and its influence. Now, let me read verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, do you hear that? Unless you do this, you can't be saved. So there's a condition there. Verse 5. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So I want you to think in terms of condition and necessity, okay? Condition and necessity. And by the way, when I use the word legalism, here's the definition I'm thinking, uh, and hopefully this is nice and and pithy and, and short, okay? Of course, I stole it because if I tried to come up with one, it'd be like a paragraph. When a rule becomes more important than a person, okay? Legalism is when a rule becomes more important than a person or when the rules, plural, become more important than people, plural, okay? So first, the language of condition. Unless you do this, you can't be saved. Why, are these, why is this important? Well, when a student applies for a scholarship for college, let's say, uh, it's standard to have a set of conditions to meet in order to qualify for that scholarship. We, we, we've... Some of us are there now, some of us have been there, some of us will be there in the future. And, and that's very normal, right? If you meet the requirements, if you meet the conditions, you're in. A certain GPA, an SAT score, an ethnicity, a socioeconomic background. For example, unless you are Native American, right, you're not going to measure up, so to speak, for the Native American Scholarship Fund Award. Unless your parents attended UF, for instance, you don't qualify for the UF Alumni Award and so forth, right? There's conditions to all of those things. The, the version this takes on in the church sounds more like this. Unless you dress in a coat and tie, you can't come here. We obviously don't have that rule here. Says the guy up in the front wearing jeans and a short sleeve shirt. Uh, but some churches do. They have that feel. They may not say it out loud, but it's very much the feel, right? Or a church here locally who... Um, had a, a, a police officer in the community who was part of that church, and through his uh, work as a police officer, he befriended a prostitute. And he encouraged her to come to church one Sunday. And as she walked in, someone at the front, you know, presumably an usher or something like that, literally said these words, quote, your kind isn't welcome here. Okay. Or a a young woman who first heard, the very first time she ever heard a homophobic slur directed to her was in a church. She hadn't up until that point in her life, 18, 19 years old. Unless you vote for, right, you can't be here. Or unless you think a certain way. Unless you've been married only once, never been divorced, you can't be saved. Or in relationship to law, whatever the law is, whatever the standard is, okay, when we think law in this uh, context, and if you're here and not a Christian, a lot of times when, when we say law in the church, we're talking about Old Testament law. I'm not necessarily referring to Old Testament law. I'm just talking about a standard, right? Unless you're this, or unless you meet this, or unless you do this, then you're not, uh, you don't measure up, you're not in. And what legalism does is it uses that law to make those who practice it feel good, Instead of seeing how that law points them to their need for a savior, because, of course, you pick things that you are good at, that you measure up to, that you meet, and then, of course, you demand them from other people. The law shows us our inadequacies. It shows us our need for mercy. It's supposed to, at least. And so the beginning of holiness is being distraught about our lack of holiness. But the problem is legalism flips that around and, and won't allow you to do that. The default mode of every human heart is legalism. We're just wired toward it. Why is that? Because we like this whole give me something to do, right? Give me something to follow. Because 
if I, if I can get a list or if I can get something that, that I, I know I can kind of direct myself toward, I'll know I'm good, I'll know I've measured up, I'll know I'm in. But it's, there's got to be something. Give me a set of requirements to meet. Whatever it is. And here's the thing. Legalism is, by definition, self-attainable because there's always a scoreboard. And you can know where you stand. You know, I'm either this or I'm not. But more than that, legalism is so much easier than love, isn't it? Because it simplifies the world. It simplifies the world into a system that substitutes the hard work of love for just black and white. You're either this or you're not. You're in or you're out. You measure up, you don't measure up. And, we're, and, and, and love is a lot more gray. It's a lot more messy. It's a lot more unsure. And hopefully that will make more sense as we go. So here in the context of Acts 15, rather than love the Gentile believers who were different from them, different ethnicities, different cultures, different customs, of course, not circumcised, to use the example of verse 1, rather than love them, the Pharisees wanted these new believers to submit to their system. And the rules, oftentimes, in and of themselves, are not bad, right? They were wanting to honor the law that God had given to them. That's not a bad thing. Uh, But it's when the rule meets our, or more often, others' ability to keep the rule that it becomes a weapon we use to beat other people up with, right? What happens when we relate to other people on the basis of a rule or rules uh, and not as a person? Have you ever been related to on the basis of a rule and not as a person? Uh, My son and I uh, went to... We went to this, I won't give you the name because it's not important, but it was a golf course in the area one time to hit golf balls. And I had looked it up on the Internet, and it said it was a public course. I'd never been there before. So we go through the guard gate thing, and you know we're driving back in there, and we get our clubs out, and we walk up to the clubhouse. Now, I've played a fair bit of golf in my life, so I'm not you know, an idiot when it comes to you know, navigating all this stuff. And we walk up to the counter. Hey, can my, uh, we'd like two bucket of, buckets of range balls, please. Sir, are you a member? N- no, uh, I saw on the Internet this is a public course. This has been a private club for the last 15 years. And unless you're a member, you cannot play or hit golf balls here. I mean, just as jerky as you could possibly be. And it was all I could do. Well, I'm not prone to reach across and, you know, hit anybody. It was all I could do to just not smart-aleck him back or something. I was so upset. And it wasn't so much that we couldn't go hit balls because we'd go find another place to go hit golf balls. That's not a big deal. It was the way he was relating to me and to Ethan. As if we were, we didn't fit the profile or the rule. He didn't, he didn't relate to us as people who were there interested in, you know, just hitting golf balls. And that's kind of a silly example. But... It felt, it just felt yucky at the time. Have you ever been related to on the basis of a rule and not on the basis of your God-given dignity as a human being? Now, there are a lot more serious, more sobering examples. We don't have time to go into them, but think about in your own life. We've all had those times. How did that feel? Okay? Okay, so how, how do you know where you're most likely to get caught in legalism? This is the This is a helpful question. What is your life organized around? Fill in this blank. What is my life organized around? Fill in this blank. I would never 
I would never, so for me, uh, and, and some of you know this, I would never eat at Crystal. I may have eaten at White Castle, which is just like Crystal, in another state, withdrew sometime in the past, late at night when we were really hungry. But, of course, I won't tell you about that. I've never eaten at Crystal. I would never eat at Golden Corral. Why? Because, of course, the food's not healthy. It's a buffet. There's all kinds of reasons that I've come up with. And when I drive past it and I see it, the parking lot full, I judge all those people. (laughs) All of them. Write them off completely. They must not care about their bodies. They must not... And some of you have heard my grocery store, grocery cart, self-righteousness. And it's, oh, man, I would never, you know, I'm walking past. I would never, oh, I'd never buy that. Oh, I'd never eat that. That's awful. Do you know what you're doing to yourself by eating that? Right? Now, those are silly, but it's real. It's very real. What is your life organized around? I'm, I'm telling you about the idol of health, Right? It's going to be hilarious when I die at 60. (laughs) It really is. I mean, it's going to be funny. Because I'm going to have done all this, you know, work out, try to be healthy, eat all this stuff, and then I'm gone, right? (laughs) How's that working for you is what Peter will say when I (laughs) meet him at the pearly gates, right? What do you love? What are you hoping in? What are you trusting Oftentimes, those are the kind of questions, if you sit with them long enough, they will determine what your idle tendencies are, but they'll also determine where you're most likely to be or become legalistic. Think about it this way. You work very hard. You started a company. You're an entrepreneur. You've become very successful. You didn't have anything growing up or when you started, and now you're tremendously successful materially. You know, maybe you you have lots of money, nice home, cars, this and that and the other thing, how do you tend to view other people who are lazy? How do you tend to view other people who struggle to hold down jobs, right? There, there's, there, there's, a, there's a scope in which we live that out, out of which we begin to judge and look at the world. But the problem at the heart of legalism is a blindness and a self-deception because we often judge other people by the very same or about the very same things that, that, that we're poor at, Right? It's a very strong gravitational pull. So what do we do? Uh, What do we do with all of this? Well, the leadership here at the Council of Jerusalem, as this is called, uh, some of your Bibles may, may even list it that way, is the leadership says we're going to choose grace over law. They they said we're legalism is not going to stand. And so move moving on to the message of the apostles. Rather than submit to the false gospel of legalism, which says this, legalism focuses on the bad news of other people's failures and my good performance, okay? So everybody else's failures, my good performance. The apostles once again say here, the true gospel of grace is what we're going to preach, promote, and live in. And it says everyone has failed, and I'm going to focus on my failure as I stand before God, but the gospel takes me from my failure to the good performance of Jesus Christ. Not everybody else's failure and my good performance, all of our failures and the good performance of Jesus. And if you're here not a Christian or you're trying to figure that out, let me say clearly, legalism is not Christianity. 
And if you've experienced the church that way, that's not Christianity because it's exhausting. Legalism is, uh, is tiring. It is, uh, oh, man, just, just gross. And Christianity is, li- is liberating. Jesus himself said, if you, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? It's liberating. Now, if you go down to verse 7, I just want to highlight a couple things. How active God is in the work of salvation. Look at how Peter puts this. Look at the words he uses to describe God. Verse 7, God made a choice. Verse 8, God bore witness. God gave the Holy Spirit. God cleansed their hearts by faith. It's as if Peter is saying to these who have come and are saying, unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. It's necessary for us to circumcise them. It's as if he's saying, look, the only way to be saved is by God's acting on your behalf. He has to cleanse your heart. Unless God does, you can't be saved. You couldn't possibly meet all the conditions necessary to stand before him anyway. What's necessary, what's required, is 100% obedience to everything God has said to be and to do. That's the law. And let me say, the Bible is very clear and pretty sobering, actually, in its description of our problem. It says we've all sinned. It says we've all sought our own ways. To quote uh, Johnny Lee, we've all been looking for love in all the wrong places. Right? That's actually a great song because it was written by a guy who came to the end of his life and realized how empty his life was because he had been looking for love in all the wrong places. And I think he used the word love very intentionally. That's the essence of sin, isn't it? It's, it's looking for purpose and looking for meaning. It's pursuing passions. It's pursuing loves, desires, everywhere and in everything and everyone but God. And deep down inside, Drew talked about this last week, deep down inside we all know it. But as we, as we also talked about last week, we suppress the truth. We'd rather make up an attainable set of rules, a system of living that tells us we're okay. We organize our lives around it. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's being a parent. Maybe it's making money. Maybe it's a social justice movement or worse, maybe even religion. And then we use it as a yardstick to measure everyone else. And when they don't measure up, we beat them with the yardstick. It's a really thick one, you know. They tend to be kind of thin, those yardsticks. You could break them easily if you try to beat somebody with it. But these are really thick. The worse others do, the better it makes us feel. And that's our, our law. But God has a law too. And if you look back at the assurance of pardon uh, in your worship folder from Galatians 3, God has a law, and however, our failures to meet it result in a curse. The Apostle Paul says, if you're relying on your rule-keeping to make you okay in God's sight, you're cursed. Why? Because while you might be really good at your system of rule-keeping, there's a host of other rules you're not good at. That's, that's, that's the definition of legalism. You pick the rules you're good at, you ignore the rules you're not. Right? Legalism blinds you to that. That's why Jesus critiqued the Pharisees the way he did. They emphasized the rules they kept, and they ignored the ones they didn't. He, they, they gave a tenth of their mint leaves to God, but they weren't kind or just to other people. And that's the trouble with the law. Paul says in Galatians 3, if you don't keep all of it, you're guilty of breaking all of it. It's all or nothing. 
Now, keep reading in the assurance of pardon. And here comes the good news. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, Jesus himself met all the conditions of the law, but wasn't legalistic. He did everything that was required. He obeyed God from the heart. He loved him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. And then he did what was necessary to bring salvation. He was cursed for our disobedience. He was treated as a lawbreaker so that we can be treated as a law keeper. And because he was cursed, when you trust him, you are treated as he deserved. Peter says our hearts are cleansed by faith in Jesus. The irony of Christianity is this, and we've, we've talked about this before around here in different ways. The condition you must meet or you truly cannot be saved. Okay? The condition you must meet is that you must be disqualified. That's what qualifies you. What qualifies you is your disqualification. What's necessary is that you admit you haven't met the requirements because you can't. There's incredible freedom in that. And no other way of living, no other worldview offers it. Jesus answers the question in John 6, 28 that our our hearts are often so prone to ask. We hear this great news. Now we say, what must I do? I've received the free gift of salvation. Awesome. What do I now need to do to make sure God knows he didn't waste any of Jesus' blood on me? What do I need to do? I've got to read my Bible every day. I've got to pray every day. I've got to church as much as I can. I've got to listen to Christian music. I've got to read Christian fiction. I've got to watch Christian movies. I've got to wear Christian T-shirts. I've got to make sure I don't cuss, drink, dance, or chew, or hang out with people who do, right? And slowly, but surely, over time, the irreligious person who comes to faith in Jesus becomes a religious person who, as they experience some success in those areas, becomes self-righteous, becomes judgmental, starts to easily point out the failure of others and grow more confident in their own performance, eventually thinking to themselves, listen to this, no doubt God realizes by now I was a, I was a good candidate for salvation. That's what happens. So now circle back to John 6, and John says to them, or excuse me, Jesus says to them in verse 29, they say, what must we do? He says, believe. Believe in him whom God has sent. So let me rephrase verse 1 of Acts 15 in light of all this to say, unless God cleanses you by faith through the grace of the Lord Jesus, you cannot be saved. Unless God Not unless you, but unless God. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Now, third point, the difference it all makes. And uh, this is short, I assure you. Because all I want to do is illustrate how this works from the rest of of chapter 15. Um, The most dangerous effect of making rules more important than people is verse 10. Let me read it to you. Or, uh, or, or follow along there in, on the insert. Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In effect, what you're saying when you do that is this, God, your work is not enough. Peter's question is addressing that. Anytime you add conditions or necessities to becoming a Christian or living as a Christian, you're placing Yokes and burdens around the necks of others when you know, when you really know or have an experience of the grace of Jesus. 
when you know Jesus took your burdens and put the yoke of your sin around his neck, then it frees you from doing that to others. Now, the rest of chapter 15, even some of what we read, isn't it amazing? You've got to read it slow or else you can miss it. The dissension, the debate, the discussion. Notice how many times Luke says during this council they had debate, discussion, dissension. Now, what do you think that was like? There's a debate tomorrow night. Don't think it'll be like this one. Our culture doesn't know how to do this. And there's something about the collective wisdom in the church. This is not isolated individuals making decisions, writing letters. It's the body of Christ coming together to consider and to counsel together, to love one another, to listen to one another. And that's how they come to the conclusion that they come to. The summary is in verse 19. If you have a Bible, you can look there. Otherwise, just listen. James says this. It's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It's my judgment we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult for the fill-in-the-blank who are turning to God. So I thought of some things. You know, we shouldn't make it difficult for those unfamiliar with Christianity or who are trying to figure it out, who are turning to God by using the the shoot Christians say from last week and that amazingly funny and great video, right? What was that video getting at? All the Christianese we use constantly. We, it's like we're speaking in code words. And that can make it difficult for people who want to turn to God but are unfamiliar with our code words. We shouldn't be making it difficult for those of other ethnicities turning to God because we're monocultural or we're just not very interested in making changes that might make them feel more welcome, right? We shouldn't be making it difficult for those of the LGBT community who are turning to God by speaking of them as if they weren't even human. We shouldn't be making it difficult for those turning to God whose lives are are just chock full of disaster and heartache by presenting our lives and ourselves as, as pretty and put together. How are you doing this morning, brother? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Right, because a person who meets with a bunch of people who say that all the time every week, whose life is really a mess, ends up thinking, I don't belong here. These people are all great. I need some people whose lives are screwed up like mine. This is the hard work of love. There's no easy answers. There's a lot more gray than black and white. I've said that already. But the, the letter from the Jewish apostles to the, to the Gentile believers calls on them to love their fellow believers who come from Jewish backgrounds by, and you can read this later, abstaining from food sold that was involved in idol sacrifices. Why? Because that was very offensive to Jews. It prevented them from even being able to eat together. So they called on the Gentiles to love their Jewish brothers by not partaking of that type of food. But it also calls on Gentiles to abstain from sexual immorality because promiscuity in that culture was accepted as normal. And so it would distinguish them as different. Listen, There were some 613 laws for Jews to keep. 613. These guys pick out a couple. They pick out a couple to encourage the Gentile new new Christians to consider. They were were reasonable. They were not physically taxing. Circumcision. That's a challenge physically for grown men. Right? 
These were reasonable. They were not physically taxing. They were asking the Gentiles to bear the burdens of their Jewish brothers and sisters. But their main concern, listen, their main concern was not making it difficult for those turning to God. It's what grace does. It makes you gracious. So I wonder, could we be a church like that? Could we be a church that doesn't make it difficult for those who are turning to God because our hearts are full of the grace of the Lord Jesus because we know that's the only way through which you can be saved. Uh, Let's pray and ask God to do that in us, uh, not just this morning, but as we continue our mission. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Uh, As we sang in that song a little while ago, all all of the ways in which uh, you're beautiful, ultimately your beauty, your most beautiful, your most glorious moment was when you hung on the tree. As you redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by taking on all of the sin and shame and wickedness and rebellion, drinking the cup of the Father's wrath down to its dregs for us. And we pray that the the graciousness with which you have reached out to us might so penetrate our hearts and so captivate our souls that your grace would make us gracious and that we would not make rules more important than people, that we would think through the hard work of love, that we wouldn't be afraid to challenge, that we wouldn't be afraid to call people to things as the apostles do here, even in this, this letter, but that we would do it from a posture of grace, we would do it from a posture of love. May we be that kind of church who don't make it difficult for those who are turning to you. And may you be honored and glorified as a result. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The good news of the gospel. (laughs) Um, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) The good news of the gospel is uh, you're secure enough in Jesus. You don't have to do stuff like that um, that I just did. Uh, No, the good news of the gospel is he loved you when you had broken all the rules. You hadn't kept any of them. And he loved you through that in the midst of that to change you into a person who loves his rules. And his rule, as the Apostle Paul says, is love. That's the rule that he empowers us with, imparts to us, makes us become a part of, and, and, and gosh, it just defines us. And so would you go with that song and the words of that song ring in your ears, down into your heart, out through your very lives, that the love of Jesus moves you to become a person who is loving like that. So receive the words of the benediction as a final word to empower you to go with his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.